You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing, a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts uh, Hearts and Minds Books. And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see, uh, you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at, say, barnesandnoble.com. Basically, go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask, is a certain book available? Now, they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is, uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, and you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether there's some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask. Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through books and uh, heartsandminds.com as well. Uh, but I really encourage you to check them out, especially if, um, if only 10% of your book orders, uh, you switch over to, to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so I encourage you, heartsandminds.com and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. Thanks, everyone, for joining me for another episode of Uncommentary. This is Marty Duran, and I'm glad to have today a guy who knows a little bit about tech and AI and some stuff like that, but specifically as it's related to uh, worship and related to what Christ- how it affects Christians uh, in culture and what it means for our spiritual lives. So um, Dean of Enrollment and something or another, and educa- uh, Enrollment Services, and Educational Technology, and Professor of Media Arts and Worship at Dallas Theological Seminary. Is that right? I think that's right. All right, good. Dr. John Dyer, welcome to Uncommentary. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, what were, you told me what your dissertation was on. I just want to start right there because it's really fascinating. It has something to do with people reading the Bible on their phones, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the elevator pitch. What happens when people read their Bibles on their phones? How does it change what they see and don't see? So, Dr. Dyer, when people read the Bible on their phones, how does it change what they see and don't see? 
Yeah, well, I'll start with a, a few kind of nerdy academic things, which was <laughs> to say that you know, the, the, the deeper part of the dissertation um, that's probably going to be not, not that exciting to some people is just looking at how evangelicals have tended to react to cultural change and mm-hmm. technological change. So in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of, a lot of discussion about what evangelicals actually are in our political environment. Um, but one of the things they seem to be is that they um, want to both sometimes distance themselves from cultural change, but also appropriate it and use it to spread the gospel, to share news with people. So you can see that with the printing press and the radio and all these things, and the phone is one of those things. And so all the people who have developed Bible software tend to be evangelicals, and so they tend to have you know evangelical ways of approaching Scripture baked into that software. Um, so that, that does come out in the way that people read it, and there's some you know interesting data trends that I found that we can talk about if you want to. Well, uh, let's just stop for just a second because I don't think that most people think about that when they open an app to read the Bible, uh, and I won't call any of the names, but there are several. When they open that app, the the um, the experience of accessing the Bible through that app has an influence mm-hmm. that is designed for the user so that before we ever get into the Bible, we're already experiencing someone else's plan for how we are going to uh, engage with the text. Is that right? Right. And so we can make an analogy back to the printing press, that it was a, it was a printer about 100 years after the printing press was invented that went back and invented the verse numbers. So went in and added all those things. Mm-hmm. And so now when we even open up a print Bible, there's this kind of technological scientific metaphor of verse numbers and chapter numbers that really dictate what we do. Right. So mm-hmm. we all know that if we read one chapter a day, Jesus loves us. We all know that we're supposed <laughs> to have a life verse. Right. right. These are all technological yeah. metaphors. So the same thing, like you pointed out, is happening in the application. And so in part of the work, you know, I interviewed the folks at Bible Gateway and at Logos and at Uversion. You know, the Uversion guys would say, we really believe that um, the scripture should be social. So when you open up your app, it's going to open to a homepage. It's going to encourage you to do social actions there. Hmm. So we don't want you to just read it individually. And, you know, some people would, you know, maybe like that or not like that, but they really have a conviction behind what they're doing. And they want to shape the way that you interact with Scripture. So you're right. It, there's something going on there behind just the text. So what happens to us when we are, because um, I've often said that I'm thankful for the chapter and verse divisions. It'd be really hard, mm-hmm. you know, to say, open your scroll to the middle of Isaiah and I'll wait for you <laughs> to find this Hebrew word. Uh, you know, that'd be, I guess that's why Jesus read the scripture, rolled up the scroll and sat down because there wasn't much reason to wait on anybody. Um, but I, I have wondered, um, how, how then does it affect us? How, how does us not knowing that we are, because I don't want to go down like the entire Facebook, Google algorithm thing, where mm-hmm. if you have a conversation about cucumbers, the next thing you know, somebody's trying to sell you cucumbers mm-hmm. on Facebook, um, which literally happened to me, but, um, mm-hmm. What happened? Uh, what does it mean for us not to be aware of of how we are how we are being led to approach uh, the scripture or a study via a phone or a tablet or a screen? Yeah, I, I think that's a great general question because if we um, if I pull back and just kind of say what's some general theory about technology, I give you kind of the two big planks I always give people. One of them is sort of theologically, I want to say technology is good, mm-hmm. so that it's something that you know we start out in Genesis and we're supposed to uh, create things from what God has made and those things. But I also want to say that technology is never neutral. 
So a lot of times people's kind of default thing is just to say, all that really matters is how you use it. If you use it for good, that's good. If you use it for bad, that's bad. Um, but I would say that it's, it's never neutral. Whenever you're using anything, like say a shovel, if you're digging a hole, you could be using that for a good end, like building a church or a bad end, like ax murdering somebody and burying the body parts. Mm-hmm. But either way, um, your hands are going to get shaped in that. You're going to get blisters and calluses. And it really doesn't matter if you're using it for good or bad. You're still going to get shaped. So when we when we think about that with all technology, we kind of want to be aware of what are some of those um, unintended consequences that comes when we use it. And sometimes those are unintended things are good. And like you said, the verse numbers are a really you know helpful thing, and they, they lead to all kinds of interesting things, and they can lead to negative things like proof texting. But I think for us to be aware of whenever we use a technology to communicate with someone, to do something ourselves, it's always going to have some formative power on us. So we should just approach it that way and be thinking through the the pros and the cons and, and uh, be aware of both of them. I don't, I don't think it should make us be afraid of technology, but I think the worst position we can be in is to not be aware of that at all and to just think of technology as being neutral. Um, we had a discussion in our life group uh, a while back about the use of phones uh, in in the services for your scripture, and we have, um, uh, you know, when when the Bible first started being on your phone, I was one of the first guys to say, "Hey, open up your app or open up your Bible." Blah blah blah. And then after a couple of years of that, uh, a lot of guys started saying, "Hey, why don't we just go back to kind of bring in paper Bibles and you know leather Bibles and and your actual physical Bible and not." Uh, use your phone for uh, scripture in the service. And I don't know what everyone's reasoning for that was, but I did know that uh, how easy it is to bounce from one app to the other. Mm -hmm. And for people who are engaged in social media a lot, uh, they miss five minute chunks of the sermon because they've seen some, you know, a notification of some kind and all of a sudden they're down a rabbit hole and then they've missed point number two and three scriptures. Mm -hmm. And, um, how, what is, is going back to physical Bibles for church, the best way to combat, uh, that problem? Yeah. I mean, I think you're bringing up some great points. So there's, there's, uh, when it comes to this, this difference between, um, digital and print, you know, we can list all kinds of reasons. And I did a lot of interviews with a couple hundred people and, you know, the things that you listed are there, um, things like the distractions or the texts and, I know I've looked over at somebody's phone in the middle of the service and I saw them texting. And right. then I realized that they were they were actually texting the sermon points to somebody else. And I thought, oh, man, I just judged that person and they were actually engaged. You know, and somebody else has a printed Bible and they're distracted by some notes at the bottom. Right. So there's a, there's a lot going on. But I, I did the, the data I have that I tried to actually put something, some amount of kind of sociological science to it. Um, the, the experiment that I did or the two of them that I did, one of them um, I had groups of people kind of in a Sunday school type setting, split in two. And so half of them read a passage in their phone and half read it in print. And then I asked them kind of some comprehension questions, like, did they get it? Did, mm-hmm. did, was there any difference in what they understood? Um, and then kind of how they felt and some things about it. And we'll, I'll tell you what they, what they said in a minute. But the other experiment that I had them do was just go do a 10-day reading plan at home. And again, half of them were on their phones and half of them were in print. And so just just even out of that, there were some interesting things that I think we can, we can see um, in terms of, of maybe how an aggregate these things affect us. So, yes, we know there's distractions. You, you know, you can turn those off. But I was kind of interested more in just just the experience of being on a screen itself. 
So what I found on the, on the comprehension side of things, so I had them read Jude, which um, I did just because it's somewhat familiar, but it's also a little weird, and usually pastors don't preach on it, so there's not going to be just kind of answers in their head at, and, ahead of time. And, and short enough that maybe somebody could read it on the phone without getting distracted? Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. So I think it's you know 850 words or something yeah. like that. So about about a good long blog post. Yeah. So you know when I when I did the comprehension test, the interesting thing was that really the overall scores were about the same. But then when I divided it by gender, what what happened was that uh, women scored about the same, but men actually scored uh, significantly lower on their phones. Hmm. So a lot of the research that's out there on just screen versus print reading, when they do this outside of you know a biblical text, um, the the early stuff in the 80s and 90s, you know, people always did better on print. And as the the uh, screens have gotten better and easier to read and easier to scroll in, the scores get closer and closer, but they still seem to have a little bit of a downside for for screens. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when they match, they're unable to do things like, say, um, order events in a narrative on a screen. Oh, they wow. usually score lower on that. Um, but one of the other things that sometimes happens is that they attribute a lot of this to skimming so that w- what we do on our screens most of the day is skimming. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't actually read everything on Instagram or Facebook. We kind of just fling through it. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to undo that skimming motive, even, even if you're um, reading the Bible. Sometimes if you tell people there's a time limit, then they'll end up using that whole time. But if you don't, then the phone readers always finish first. And that's why they, they tend to not catch as much. Um, in this case, it seemed like the guys went fast and the, and the, and the, and the women took the whole, the whole space. Um, so it was a little bit interesting, but, but I think what was, uh, well, I should say on the flip side. Um, so if comprehension is a little bit down for the guys, the flip side was that when they did a, a reading plan, the guys ended up reading more on their phones. So they tended to respond to the notifications mm. and to that daily reminder. So they completed more. We had them read the, the gospel of John, you know, two chapters a day. Mm-hmm for 10 days and they read more of it so it seems like that that like you said earlier how's the technology shaping us there's the sense of, of the reminder idea that that the that the technology should remind us rather than maybe us taking an initiative in, in some way and it seemed to work in that in that case but to me the, the really somewhat interesting point which i would love to get more data on in the future was when i asked them about how they interpreted jude so I asked them then two questions. I said, you know, um, what did you think the main point of the book was? And then how did it make you feel to read it? So when I said the main point, you know, uh, Jude, Jude, again, is an interesting book. You should go back and, and read it sometime. But the, the, the print readers seem to emphasize more of God's judgment in the book. Mm-hmm. And the phone readers tend to emphasize God's faithfulness over time. So wow. I don't know what's going on there. But then when I asked them how they felt, um, the the print readers said that they felt encouraged by reading the book, even though God was judgmental. But then the phone readers, even though they saw God as being faithful, they tended to circle words like discouraged and confused, and they said they wanted to read it again. How uh, how, did, so, how did that break down percentage wise? Uh, let's see. I'm trying to think. I don't I don't have those right in front of me. I think you know it was, they, they, it was probably about double as high on the discouragement and uh, confusion on the phone and, um, and about double as high on the, you know, um, encouraged side Interesting. of the print. Wow. So not, not, you know, the, the numbers, I'd love to see them bigger and I, and that's the data side. Mm. Now my, my kind of interpretation of that is that the kinds of verses we share online are the same kind of verses we have for our life verses. They mm. tend to be more positive. They tend to be, um, 
not overly sometimes they call it moral moralistic therapeutic deism mm-hmm. you know, TD. Mm-hmm. they tend to be the positive things hopeful faithful those things and so what, what i sort of wonder is if when we're on our phones and we see happy verse images on on facebook and instagram and tiktok or whatever um that our orientation toward the god of the phone is toward a happy god toward a faith toward a kind god but yet we associate our phone with kind of the anxiety of the age, mm-hmm. of the comparison of, of social media, of just the, the notifications. And so we sort of love them and we hate them. And so I, I wonder if people were associating their interpretation of Jude through that lens of a happy God, but a feeling of discouragement that we often have with our phones. So I think that that really gets at some of this, this deeper idea of, of how even the device itself is, is shaping something about the experience that we're having with Scripture. The, the words of God haven't changed. They're still eternal and powerful and authoritative, but the medium through which we access them does have some effect on us. That's amazing. So let's, um, let's think for just a second about uh, an oral culture that learns mm-hmm. all of their music, for instance, uh, solely by repetition uh, and memorization. And mm-hmm. then from that culture that's totally or- oral, uh, we move to people singing from books. And so songs are compiled, they're put together, and we would, of course, call that a hymnal. Then we move from the hymnal, where people are singing off of a page, to uh, to screens where you have projectors and the rather than the entire song with notes being available, you basically just have the lyrics uh, in chunks at a time that we hope people can read as fast or slow as we're singing the song. Um, what are potential differences in the way that people experience? Uh, I, I don't want to limit it to just worship, but engaging mm-hmm. that content. Uh, ver- a person who's singing from their memory only. They've learned it totally without reading a person who maybe learned it by repetition, but it was repetition that included the reading from a page. And then, uh, and secondarily, of course, we have so many songs now that it's almost impossible to memorize any of them, but we're reading them from screens rather than from a book. Discernible differences, concerns that you would have or note, uh, things that you notice. Yeah. And, and you're, you're right. You laid out a, a couple of great eras of, of music and how that works. And you might even say the same thing of, of scripture too, that mm-hmm. people might, without having a, a printed or a digital Bible, they might have memorized that. And so, you know, one of the most often commands about what we're supposed to do with the Bible is either to obey it or to meditate on it. And to meditate on it, you've got to memorize mm-hmm. it, right? Um, and we, we mostly have access, but not memorization. So yeah, I think you're right about all the things you, you mentioned in music and, um, and yet, you know, I, I don't want to frame it in terms of all the new stuff is, is bad. Sure. Right? I mean, there's definitely some things that are some downsides we want to be aware of, but there are also these, these positive things that, you know, a song can sort of go around the globe a lot faster today mm-hmm. when someone writes something truly, you know, meaningful. Um, and, and sometimes the, the, the measurement of it being a good song is that it's catchy or contemporary. But I think other times there's really wonderful songs that are written that um, churches all around the globe are singing, at least in, in one language, really fast in ways that was just never possible before. So I think we always want to, you know, emphasize that there's going to be some downsides and some positives to it and try to think through how do we take advantage of those positives and, and maybe come up with creative ways to mitigate against the negative things. Talking to John Dyer about uh, technology and church and worship and how Christians experience uh, those things, and uh, we'll be right back after this. So what does it take to keep uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. 
There's costs associated with scheduling, and there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, it's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20 ounce Coke one time a month and you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give $250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentary pod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentary pod or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts. So you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. Uh, okay, John. So, uh, artificial intelligence, um, some of our biggest tech brains in the world are, uh, proponents of it. And then other tech brains are like fearful of it. I think Elon Musk wants to just nuke the whole entire idea, literally, not metaphorically. Um, what is artificial intelligence? How is it being implemented in culture? And then what would it mean mm. for those of us who are believers? Yeah, we can do that in about two minutes, right? No, that's, <laughs> those, are, those are great questions. Well, one thing I'd like to point out is that my friend Jason Thacker uh, at the ERLC has just come out with a great book called The Age of AI. That's a sort of Christian reflection on AI. So if you want to think more about it, I'd highly recommend you know his work. Cool. Um, but you know, if you, if you just kind of ask basically what what is AI, you know, from the early days of computers, you know, we're, we're kind of surrounded by AI all the time. You know, when we use our uh, calculators, you might think of, or when we um, hit the brakes, when we're uh, in a rainstorm, you mm -hmm. know, our braking system, anti-lock brakes oh, is yeah. using a form of AI to, to brake better than we can and, and help us not to slip out. If you, um, you know, I know right now we're kind of in lockdown for flights, but mo most of the time when you take a flight, only about the first five minutes is a pilot uh, taking you off and the last five minutes landing you. But the rest of that is all done via AI. So there, so we're kind of surrounded by that all the time. You know, a lot of us have Alexa or Google Home that we can now, you know, talk to so that the way we interact with them feels different now that mm -hmm. we're talking to it. Mm -hmm. But it's been there for, for some time. And so I think it's... Um, both new and old, but there are some some future things that are coming along that we are all all wrestling with um, and trying to decide what would be helpful and and what's not. But your anti lock braking system can't become self aware. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's doing something better than we can do in a certain way. So it's intelligent and it's artificial. But that question of can it become sentient, can it become self-aware, that's really the big – one of the big questions in the way that people lay out um, AI. And sometimes 
um, we have just just the words artificial intelligence. People add a, a middle word in there. So sometimes they say artificial narrow intelligence is that something is good at one thing. So that would be like a calculator or brakes, okay. or even identifying faces in photos, like mm. like uh, Facebook does, or even our our phones do. It's it's really good, and it, sometimes it's much much better than we are at something, but it's only good at that one thing. And the next level after artificial narrow intelligence is artificial general intelligence. And that's kind of the idea of if could could you make a, an AI that's a, about as, as, as uh, multifaceted as a human, that it can really adapt to all kinds of different things and you could teach it new tasks. And the thought is that if you were able to develop something like that, to get to the level of humans that it could then develop something that could get faster than better than humans. And eventually you get to this artificial super intelligence that would be better at humans than everything else. And the thought is that at that moment, um, some, some thinkers like Ray Kurzweil would say that's the singularity. Mm. That's this moment where technology totally surpasses humanity and either, um, you know, does wonderful, beautiful things for us and brings us into some type of utopia because it's able to cure all of our diseases, or it decides it doesn't need us anymore and it becomes the Terminator and all those those dark scenarios come out either way. So we have to, we have a couple of steps before we could get to that point either way. So you bring up Terminator, of course. Uh, that's uh, Skynet is the the running joke and has been since Terminator came out in what nineteen seventy eight or something like that. I can't even remember now mm-hmm. eighty one somewhere along that way. Uh, and so Skynet becomes self-aware, everything goes haywire, um, regularly on Twitter. I see, especially from, I guess it's uh, Boston robotics. I see these, uh, videos of guys in the lab. They're working on these, uh, robots that are incredibly agile. Uh, it appears that they're learning. Uh, I don't know. It could be a guy behind the wall, like the wizard of Oz with a remote control for all I know. Um, uh, one doing parkour. I mean, there's all these kinds of things. And it does it. There is the appearance, at least, that at some point uh, the robots could get together like the squirrels never have been able to do and turn on us. And uh, then it's like you you better be armed. Is that real? Yeah. Well, I, I personally, I'm I'm not as worried about that. Um, I don't mean to be a, a an optimist in a bad way. Um, but I think that, you know, when we look at um, some of the, the things that have happened the last couple of years with AI, for example, being able to beat humans in chess or in Go, most of the time when that when that happens, when it's finally able to, to see more moves than a human, it will usually make some unexpected move, something that, that seems out of the ordinary. And you think, wow, that, that's really creative and interesting. And, and sometimes the worry is more that that's what would happen, that let's say, for example, if you told an AI, how do we eliminate pollution? And you said there's no parameters, just eliminate all pollution. Well, the, this, the kind of logical solution would be to kill all humans, right, you know. Right. And so, so you'd have to have some type of like governor on that to to say, okay, that the one thing you can't do is to do this thing against humans. What's much harder concern is to actually have an AI that is self-aware in some way and that has. Uh, desires for itself right that in some ways it wants self-preservation over anything else and so actually creating that is, is pretty it's kind of a complicated task um i mean you could do it in terms of like if you gave it a bunch of weapons or something like that but to actually have something that is aware enough to then go seek its own weapons or to know that um say ending a life is even even possible we're not even there yet right now mm-hmm. so probably most of the the concerns or are, are more accidental at this point that like i said that those unexpected moves and go could could turn out to be something else 
that we might not um, have have, have uh, planned for, really. And I think that's the concern that people have right now, not so much that we could create a, a Terminator that would go and do something. So how, does, uh, how should Christians then think about uh, how AI might affect us spiritually? I always go back to uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower's final address to the nation where he warns, uh, that there's going to be a military or that there has arisen a military industrial complex that affects us spiritually. It's a part mm. a lot of people never even think about. They read right through it because they're so mad about the military industrial complex. Mm. Uh, but it, he warned that it would affect us spiritually. And I've never been able to get around that. How might mm. AI affect us spiritually in a way that's even beyond how we uh, take in scripture from a screen? Mm, those, are, those are such great questions. And I think, the AI is so vast in terms of what it covers. It's it's kind of the whole, really the whole area of technology. Almost everything we have is going to have some level of AI in it. And the way we think about ourselves and our relationships and God and why we're here, I think all get influenced by that. So, you know, if, if we were to think about something like uh, like the promise of AI developing some way for us to live eternally or or uh, maybe we call it transhumanism or posthumanism in, in that subject. So if AI is the way to that, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of things about um, what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be embodied that we can ask questions about? Um, I mean, I think for us as, as Christians, I think we certainly want to um, – value the the things that AI can do toward and to toward human flourishing, toward those ideas in, in Jeremiah twenty nine that are saying we should seek the welfare of the city. Right. That we should keep having babies and build the city and, and all those things. I think AI can help us in a lot of those things. And yet just like all the other technologies we talked about in the in the first half, that we want to be reflective on them and be thinking about the ways that they might be shaping our expectations and really what what we think life is about. Is it about like ease and getting something or is there some type of development Development, cultivation of the soul that sometimes requires us to not use technology, right? That we, if we want to become healthy bodies, we go for a jog, right? Mm-hmm. We don't always use a device. So there may be those cases where even relationally that we talk with people, not always with robots, but that doesn't mean we don't ever. But then there are some ethical frameworks being developed out there that I think we can participate in. And I think part of that requires us to actually experiment with AI. So I don't think that you can just sit in an ivory tower and um, just pontificate about these things. Right. These are the kind of ethics we need are embodied ethics for AI. And so they're going to require believers to be, you know, working at companies um, and, and having a, a voice for them. So there, there are several frameworks out there, some from, you know, engineering institutes, some from lawyers, some from uh, Christian organizations like the ERLC. I mentioned Jason Thacker earlier. They put out an evangelical statement of principles mm-hmm. that's more kind of from the theological perspective. So there's a variety of those being worked on that I think we can um, affirm and, and go forward in. But I do think probably one of the key areas for Christians is to realize that you know, when there's technological change, there's often uh, going to be w- w- what Neil Postman calls winners and losers. Mm-hmm. There's going to be people who benefit from it and people who don't. And so w- w- the easiest one to explain would be saying if, if the self-driving cars ever completely come online, you know, there's something like two to five million workers in America that their primary job is transportation and they would you know, lose those jobs eventually. And so we as church would be thinking, how do we help those people and how do we seek their their flourishing? And I think in this age of the coronavirus, um, you're seeing all kinds of workers being disrupted and, and, and affected in that way. Mm-hmm. So I think technology um, 
the technological change, you can also see that in terms of the way that a, a virus or a war would happen. Um, these are very serious changes, and for us to be the kinds of people that reach out with, with compassion and justice and mercy would be a really great way to be a Christian in this age. You wrote a book called From the Garden to the City, The Redeeming and Corrupting Power of Technology. I, I feel like we've probably touched on some of those themes uh, in yeah. this talk, it is available at bookstores, and uh, so obviously it's available at the biggest one, but you can probably order it through Hearts and Minds Bookstore as well. Um, what are what are a couple of themes in your book that we haven't touched on today? Yeah, I mean, I think when we, when we look at the biblical story and we try to reread it with technological eyes or with human creativity in mind, we see all kinds of interesting stories in there where God seems to care a lot about the things we make. Um, and I think that can help us if we read the biblical story with technological eyes. It can help us to read our current technological world with biblical eyes. Mm. But some of the stories, you know, I mean, the Tower of Babel might be an obvious one. Um, but I think even from the moment when Adam and Eve, you know, first sin and they run and they hide and they they uh, are trying to think about how do I be in this new world? The first thing they do is they create something. And when God um, curses the ground and he curses the serpent, you know, he doesn't curse their act of making. In fact, he shows them a way to make something better. Out right. of it. And we all know that there's something theological there, that there's a sense that they can't cover their own sin, that God's going to have to sacrifice something and he's going to have to do something that looks forward to Jesus. But at the same time, I think God is saying in this new world, um, sometimes you're going to need to use technology to at least temporarily overcome some of the effects of the fall. And so I think that's a, a good thing for us to do. And, and even, even Jesus, you know, he, um, fulfills what Adam couldn't do in terms of righteousness. Mm -hmm. He fulfills the law, but he also does what Adam did. He was a maker and a creator. In fact, the Greek word that's that's used for for carpenter is actually tectone. It's the Greek word from which we get technology. Uh. So Jesus was a, a technologist in some sense, or or a uh, an artisan or a craftsperson mm -hmm. who made something with his hands. And so then the technology with which he worked, wooden nails, is the technology in which he dies. And so there in the center of our story, we can't tell the story of our hope and our faith apart from human creativity. Right? We refer to the cross as being uh, kind of a symbol of our salvation, mm -hmm. so that it's there in the middle. And then the end of the story is not us going back to the garden or us going up to heaven and, and being bored with harps, but of God <laughs> taking all the things that we made, roads and trumpets and banners and maybe even iPads, and redeeming those in some way and bringing those down to a new heavens and a new earth. And so our future is one of creativity and technology. So today we could use our technology in light of that day and try to think, what are the things that won't be there in that day, like medical technology, and mm -hmm. what are the things that will be there, and how can we use the, those things in a way that would honor God in that future era? That's really good. My guest today has been John Dyer from Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, a brain. Uh, this has been excellent. I hope you'll pick up his book, From the Garden of the City. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. What's your, what's your handle there? John Dyer. Oh, okay. So it's at John Dyer, D-Y-E-R, uh, for That's those right. of you. So, uh, Pass this episode around, if you don't mind, uh, especially to your techie friends. Uh, this would be a great one. i tell you who this would be a really great one for is uh, the volunteers who work in your tech ministry at church. This would really give them a sense of theological underpinning that they might not ever have thought about before. So share it with your tech guys uh, at church. John, thanks so much for being with me. It was awesome. Thanks so much. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean, 
or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use. If you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page, or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solidale Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Mm-hmm.